Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Sudan's new government is facing an uphill battle to implement reforms. Is there reason for optimism? And Benin's president forced his rivals into exile and didn't invite them to the national dialogue. What is happening in West Africa's democracy, darling? Plus, we discuss the role of digital identity in unlocking the region's digital economy. How do we get this right? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Sudan's civilian government is struggling to revive the country's economy, reduce the influence of the military leadership, and implement a raft of political reforms to support the democratic transition. We want to tell the world we are moving away from sanctions, issues of punishment and all that, to a Sudan that is coming back to the fold of normal nations. What are the prospects for success? Joining me today to discuss Sudan and other topics is Magdi Amen, an investment partner at the Amidiar Network, Cameron Hudson, a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, and Victoria Crandall, the host and founder of Young African Entrepreneur Podcast, and the director of media relations for Insider, a PR company working with African tech startups. Okay, Magdi, we talked about Sudan back in June on this show, and that we were just, I mean, we were really fresh. The massacre on June 3rd had just happened, which resulted in the deaths of at least 130 people. And now the transition is kind of bumbling along. It wasn't derailed, as I think we thought back in June. Uh, We now have a prime minister. Uh, The FCC, the Forces for Freedom and Change, have named five military and six civilian representatives to a sovereign council. They named that in conjunction with the military. And now when I talk to folks, I get the sense that it's either cautiously optimistic about the transition or deeply skeptical. And since you were just in Sudan and you are Sudanese, uh, maybe you can help us sort of untangle this and, and give us what you think are the top challenges ahead. Thanks, Judd. When I was there, it was just after the celebration around the signing, and I stayed there through the arrival and sort of celebration at the airport of of the new Prime Minister Hamdok. And so I was there at a very optimistic time. There were floods. People were dealing with some challenges. It was also very clear that people were very concerned about the economy. I got the sense and directly said that they would give this new government plenty of runway to get things moving and understood that in the short run it would take some more sacrifices. In my more recent trip, I learned that one of the young people I had sat down and had coffee with was killed uh, in the massacre. You know, those kids were, were discussing the future and having very sort of deep conversations about the challenges of the country. And it was such a sort of profound moment of seeing people take control of their destiny out of having very limited prospects before. Uh, and then to learn that he had been killed was, was, you know, was kind of deeply moving and troubling. But I felt the, uh, the momentous sort of moment we were in, seeing then you know, the new prime minister arrive and trying to set this, this straight. So Cameron, you've worked Sudan for a very long time under the last two administrations. I guess I'm curious if you agree with Magdi. Uh, is there such thing as a honeymoon for Prime Minister Hamdak? And then I thought you could share your thoughts on U.S. sanctions. You wrote a really great piece in foreign policy about why the United States should lift sanctions. And so can you kind of reiterate some of those and, and what does that process look like? 
I've been saying for a while now that we in the international community and certainly in the United States need to help the PM gain some kind of quick wins. And I think there has to be a democracy dividend that becomes apparent to people, whether it's you know, on the economic side, on the sort of political freedom side, uh, certainly the prime minister um, has done a lot in his, what, six weeks <laughs> in the job to signal the direction of his administration uh, in terms of uh, beginning to negotiate uh, comprehensive peace deals with all of the various rebel groups uh, still holding arms in the country, appointing a really technocratic uh, and diverse cabinet and surrounding himself with people who I think um, represent uh, a new kind of Sudan that people have been really hungry for. So there's a lot to be really optimistic about. But I think that if we don't uh, start to see, you know, an improvement in the economic situation, if the kind of kitchen table issues that put people in the streets in the first place a year ago, uh, the price of bread we're seeing still, there's there's rioting and, and uh, protesting around uh, bread prices, fuel prices, things like that. If people don't start to see those uh, impacts in a positive way, I think the honeymoon will, will quickly come to an end. And of course, the military is doing its part to to show itself as a competing center of power in the country. Mogli um, mentioned the floods. You know, the military has been very good about responding to floods. I heard that the the Janjaweed has started a kind of Uber service in uh, inside Sudan right now, where they're ferrying people back and forth to jobs. And you know, they are the RSF is trying to the the former sort of Janjaweed trying to reform themselves to look more statesmanlike and get people to forget this long history of of atrocities that, that a, they've carried out. Is that a cartoon reimagining of the RSF? Because there's been lots of reports about the RSF. Uh, in conflict in the countryside. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a conflicted situation, right? I mean, you look at the RSF and Hemeti trying to respond to the flooding, trying to respond to civil uprising uh, against local government in a place like Red Sea State, where they're looking like they're trying to bring law and order in a in a positive way um, to the country and respond when people are in need from a humanitarian perspective. At the same time, you know, you're seeing them fire on crowds in various situations. So, you know, I think from from the top, they are trying to reform themselves, reform their image. We've heard famously that Tamedi has hired a PR firm and, you know, clearly he has ambitions beyond uh, his current role on the Supreme Council. And he's thinking he's thinking long term about his his future in the country. I think for selfish reasons, because uh, if he doesn't have a position of power, then he's likely to be held to account for the various crimes that were committed under his under his command. So I think it's a complicated picture. I'm optimistic. I think the opportunity is now for the U.S. and the international community to step forward and support the reforms, uh, as we always say, empower the moderates. Right. So, but is the lifting of SST the the quick win that we're talking about? I mean. Hamdok has started to rally the international community um, and trying to grow this international consensus around it, the French, the Russians, African governments, the Gulf states. The U.S. has been urging patience, right? Tibor Naj, the Assistant Secretary of State, said removing state sponsor of terrorism designation is not an event, is it a process? So what is the quick win if it's not SST? Well, I don't think it's SST, right? I think I think that it is a process and it's going to take some time. I think unlike in previous iterations of us trying to lift the state sponsor issue, I don't think that we should view it as an end state or an end goal. I think it should be separated from all the other areas that we're, that we're working on. So I think a quick win could be 
normalizing our diplomatic relationship, having an exchange of ambassadors. If we're really going to try to improve the bilateral relationship and seek ways to support this government, then we need a fully staffed embassy and an ambassador uh, with full credentials and Senate confirmation, as do the Sudanese need someone here who's going to be able to represent their interests and, and advance their agenda. The big agenda, of course, is the economic reforms. Yeah. And in order to move forward on the economic reforms, I guess it could be possible to separate these two tracks so long as Treasury has the ability to support, for example, uh, debt relief or a large trust fund in the absence of direct financing or re-access re to IDA. I don't think it can, though. Yeah. Under so SST. It, it, no, it can. It, it can. can. It, it can't vote in, in support, right. but it doesn't have a veto. Okay. So we can't support those things right now at the World Bank or the IMF, but that doesn't mean that everybody else can't. What other things, Magdi, in your mind are critical here to get uh, this government on the right foot? The instruments that were used uh, for the last regime aren't appropriate for the current regime. The reforms themselves are all about transparency, good governance, removing sort of the the overhang between the old regime and the economy, opening up the opening up competition, including opening up to, to Western investment. Ultimately, those would would require SST. But in the short run, there's a lot of leverage and a lot of engagement that can be had through these economic processes. I think financing is needed to uh, you know build safety nets so that some of those subsidies can be at least moved to something more targeted and more direct. I want to move to Benin. Now, sometimes on this podcast, uh, we tackle the really big issues like Sudan and lots of times in Nigeria. But the secret is that this is also my opportunity to talk about the small country. So we're going to talk about Benin because Benin has been this democracy darling for a very long time. It has a very small population of 10 million, but it's got this symbolic importance because it was one of the first countries to transition to multi-party democracy in the 1990s. And they've had a number of transitions uh, from incumbents to challengers. The president, Patrice Talon, who was a businessman, has been just on a tear. Benin's president, Patrice Talon, has announced plans to reform the West African country's governmental institutions. He's prosecuted one of his opponents in absentia for drug trafficking. Then he deployed troops to surround uh, his immediate predecessor and longtime rival, uh, Yayi Boni. He supported legislation that's made it impossible for the opposition to contest the elections. And then this month, he held this national dialogue where there were some proposals to roll some back some of these restrictions. But uh, who was invited? Well, not his rivals. Pretty much the only people who showed up at the national dialogue were the parties aligned to him. Now, Victoria, I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't know how much you follow Benin, but you in proximity are closer to anyone else since you live in Lagos. Are you hearing about these issues? Have you been thinking about this? This is also coming at a time where Nigeria has had really unproductive policies towards Benin closing the border. Uh, it's a different topic for a different time, but I, I wanted to bring you in the conversation. No, it's not really registering in Nigeria, or at least in the circles in which I move. Um, and honestly, I just don't think Benin even registers on the radar of most Nigerians really unless they're trying to bring goods in and out of the country, whether that's legal or illegally. Um, and I think 
the closure of the land border is a much more pertinent issue to Nigerians. Um, and generally, I think the indifference to Benin's politics speaks to really the lopsided relationship between the two countries. Nigeria is the region's giant politically and economically, and it just really looks inwardly, doesn't really look to its neighbors. And I think that can lead to resentment of Nigeria amongst uh, political elites. And perhaps that has helped contribute to worsening relations between Tello and Buhari. I know I'm going to regret saying this, but sometimes I think of Nigeria as the Americans of Africa, throwing their weight around, not really thinking about sort of the consequences for their neighbors. But Benin is, again, just to reiterate, is a really important country that we, the United States, have invested a lot in. First of all, I think it's really important to spend some time on why Benin has hit this sort of democratic wall and backsliding because it has implications for our investments that we've done over the years into democracy and governance. And also, uh, what does it tell us about the strength of political parties in other countries? But Cameron, you've actually spent some time with uh, former President Yayi Bani. Yeah, you know, just having this conversation makes me reflect, you know, when I was in the Bush administration, um, there were sort of two countries that we were holding up, sort of smaller countries as, you know, sort of strong democracies that we'd put in kind of that column. One was Benin and one was Mali, right? Mali, we went to Timbuktu for the Community of Democracies meeting, which they which they hosted. And we sent a large uh, delegation, high-level delegation. And as you mentioned, President Yai had a, an Oval Office meeting with President Bush and President Bush stopped in Benin on his way to the continent on his second trip in the second term. And I think that, you know, in retrospect, maybe we were premature, maybe we, we moved on from some of those democracies too quickly. And what looked like an institutionalization of sort of democratic principles either wasn't or was tied to an individual or was tied to a set of circumstances that without, uh, you know, long term and sustained engagement in these places, um, you know, are, are able to take detours in ways that, um, you know, that that uh, that are not good for for democratic development. That's how I feel about it, that when we do engagement in democracy and governance issues, there isn't a finish line, right, that these countries cross. I don't think this is the time to count out Benin because they do have a vibrant civil society. I mean, there were protests around uh, the legislative election, but it also means that Friends of Benin, both the region, ECOWAS, and then the international community can be doing more to engage here. Okay, we're going to move to uh, the main topic today, which is about digital identity. Back in September, we hosted an event entitled Digital Identity and the Future of Africa's Digital Economy with the generous support of the Amidiar Network. Digital ID is almost a, a fundamental identity issue, but it's also an issue of dignity. In addition to Magdi, we had Chris Burns of USAID and Vigianti Desai of the World Bank on the panel. I wanted to reprise some of that conversation here on the podcast, uh, but bringing Cameron, who uh, in a former life was at the CIA as an economist, he and I were office mates, causing lots of trouble. And then also Victoria, who's has a fantastic podcast where she interviews entrepreneurs that were involved in fintech and blockchain, big data, and other sectors. So Magdi, please start us off. The Amidiar Network has championed this issue, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. What is digital identity and why is it important? I think a couple of uh, couple of key points you're making. First of all, there's a global 
pool of about a billion people who don't have any form of documentation. Civil registries, um, birth certificate, birth registration is quite low in many countries. And if you don't have any form of documentation, you lack access to services, you lack access to health or education. Often transfer systems depend on identity. Digital identity is a way of sort of leapfrogging, building on, and in many cases, building on sort of those civil registration systems, but in many cases, doing very rapid enrollment of people technologically that allows them to have such access. But like like all technologies, there are both um, benefits as well as potential harms that arise from them. So we are very concerned that as these digital identity systems get rolled out across Africa, that they are not only designed for inclusion, which include all people, not only citizens, but also designed to be interoperable across countries to facilitate a common free trade area, to protect people's privacy, not resulting in you know surveillance states, but actually empowering people through what we call notion of good digital identity, transparently delivered in ways that people understand and buy into, you know, really empowering people for not only social service delivery, but also access to finance. So, for example, KYC becomes very, very easy to do once you have digital identity in place. So it's a route both for, you know, better, more efficient economies, but also, you know, a way to get entrepreneurs going once the people can identify themselves and through KYC, you know, access to payment systems and finance um, can support entrepreneurship. That's a perfect tee-up because... Victoria, all you do is work with entrepreneurs. Um, your podcast, again, which I really like, you know, breaks down how you start and grow a business in Africa. How does digital identity play a role in unlocking Africa's digital economy? You know, in your interviews and in your engagements, I mean, what have you learned about um, both the obstacles that a lack of digital ID identity that is interoperable and follows standards? What does that mean? And have you seen sort of the opportunities? Um, that come with greater adoption of this um, measure? Digital identity is the very foundation of a digital economy in Africa. And startup founders, they simply have no users if those users don't exist digitally. So that's clearly, that's the infrastructure, right? That's, that's step one, is that founders, unless you're going to solve that very big sticky problem, um, they're going to target a user base that already has a digital identity. And just to give a very kind of simple example, but I recently moved to Lagos three months ago and I had to find a way to transfer dollars to Naira. And I could use an aboki, so like an informal, the informal system, someone typically in the diaspora who has an account in the US and in Nigeria, and we just do a swap. And, and for an informal system that's quite organized, you can find rates online. Um, but I wanted to see what options there were, uh, what type of apps were out there, what type of rates I would get. And luckily, there's some really fantastic payments and remittance systems out there. And I downloaded two apps. And the first thing I had to do before I could connect my American bank account was, of course, authenticate my identity, which I can easily do. So again, um, as Magdi was saying, is that startups have to uh, provide identity of their users to because they have to adhere to regulatory requirements, KYC, um, and also to prevent fraud. So digital identity is really paramount. It underpins everything. And because Africa has really struggled 
in proving, providing access to digital identity for, um, for its citizens, that really stymies the development of a lot of, of a lot of startups. I think it's estimated by, uh, by World Bank that over 500 million Africans don't have access to just a birth certificate. So even in the analog world, people can't prove their identities, which clearly um, prohibits or that uh, precludes a digital identity. So, Magdi, what are the things that you would recommend to, to get us on the right path here? What are the prescriptions that, you know, Omidyar is sort of promoting and pushing? So, Omidyar and a lot of partners, including the World Bank, but also UN Economic Commission for Africa, the AU, Smart Africa, and a few other organizations are kind of working together around a couple of key things. I would say the first, one of the most important ones is data protection and privacy Last time I checked, only about 17 countries had either a data protection law in place or an institution, a data protection authority. That's a big agenda. Second is, I think civil society needs to engage. These systems need to be designed transparently. They need to be designed uh, to empower people. And you know, a vigilant, aware civil society, as well as media, can be helpful to holding governments accountable to good practices and good norms. A set of principles that the UN and uh, World Bank and and the AU have developed um, digital for good digital identity in Africa lay out some of these issues. Policies need to be done and delivered in sort of a transparent way, making it clear the intents of these systems as they get introduced. And technology, I think open source, transparent procurement, very important in Africa, so that countries don't get locked into what we've seen in sometimes vendor lock-in or data that doesn't actually get properly uh, delivered to uh, for, for governments to use. So a lot of policy, transparency, clean processes, the right technology, and data protection. Cameron, you and I both worked at the NSC where your job is to manage the interagency. So I thought maybe you would have some thoughts on if trade investment is the key priority for this administration and digital identity is so key to driving the digital economy, how are the ways that you would recommend to make this issue more central in that whole-of-government approach? You probably hate that whole-of-government approach uh, term. No, I like it. I just spell it H-O-L-E because I think we miss a lot. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm new to this issue, but hearing what Magdi was saying, I think if the U.S. is going to take an interest in this, it's going to be, I think, piggybacking on top of some of the larger initiatives that are going on um, and that are out there already. Um, you know, I would I was recently on the continent and was in a refugee camp um, and was surprised um, at how quickly the U.N. is now adopting a lot of these um, tools in registering new refugees, you know, it's all biometric data now that the World Food Program is using. I mean, but for the longest time, there was such great difficulty in just keeping track of how many people were coming and going into these camps and who was getting food and who wasn't. And so the UN is creating these huge uh, digital identity databases. And the question that they were grappling was, what are we going to do with this? Are we going to turn this database over to the government. Which government um, is this government responsible to to hold this data? How is it being protected? You know, I think so. I think there's a lot of ways that the U.S. government can marry some of the some of the various and maybe perhaps disparate efforts that are going on from a entrepreneurial perspective, from a humanitarian perspective, and and try to knit those up um, at a higher level. I think that's probably the the most you know influential way the U.S. can can play a role in some of this. 
I encourage all of our listeners to go on to CSIS.org and to check out the event because there's a lot more uh, really interesting insights from our panels. I think it's, of all the panels that we've done in the past year, that's the one I wish I was in the audience for and not sitting on the table because it was so rich with insights. Let me thank all of our guests and um, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.